I think if you want to push yourself to the next level, you need to find the next thing that pushes you out of your comfort zone. That's the voice of Nick Sawyer, owner of Sawyer Design. And I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Jobber. Jobber is software to organize and manage your business. From quoting a project to getting paid to everything in between, Jobber software brings everything together to make projects easy to manage and customers happy, giving you more time in your day and getting you paid faster. Go to getjobber.com Ethan or check out the link in the show notes for a free 14-day trial of Jobber. And if you try it now, you get 20% off your first six months when you sign up. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Nick Sawyer, owner of the Portland, Oregon furniture company Sawyer Design. Not all those who wander are lost. This could easily sum up the beginning of Nick's working life. He had the drive, he just didn't know what that drive was pushing him towards. With the help of a mentor, a new city, good experiences as well as hard ones, and a newfound community of online furniture makers, Nick found a place where his passion and his skills could come together into a profession that he loved. Follow along as we talk about what your pieces are worth, how to sell a story, the importance of community, and much more. Nick shares a lot in this episode, and what better way to hear his story than in his own words. My background, I have a biology degree. Um, I was pre-med and I ended up not going that route and really pleased I didn't. Um, My wife is in her last year of residency, so I've seen how that all plays out. And it is just, yeah, I'm really glad things worked out the way they did. That does not look like a fun avenue. Um, So I got out of school and... I knew I wanted to do something for myself. My dad is an entrepreneur. He had an excavation company and I saw the benefits of that lifestyle. And I just knew I've always kind of known that that is in my blood and it's something that I could become passionate about and want to pursue. But I didn't really know what I wanted to do that in. So I joined Boise Venture College. I'm from Boise, Idaho. Um, and Boise Venture College is more or less an incubator. I sort of describe it as a crash course MBA. And they are very VC centralized, I think, um, trying to build new businesses. After going through that, I learned a ton about business, bringing something to market product I was working on was actually a Keurig to go kind of like a Keurig in a coffee cup. But that uh, something about manufacturing just really didn't interest me. I did not pursue it beyond that. Um, And then I was bartending, met my wife. She uh, was just about to get into medical school and uh, decided that I needed a hobby. So I (laughs) uh, got a chop saw for Christmas and I started, I, I had sort of a background in airbrushing and 
uh, body art from music festivals and things of that sort. So I was doing a lot of signs. I moved into doing reclaimed like fence pickets into outdoor furniture. I had no idea what I was doing, um, but it was fun. I liked going out and making sawdust and I wouldn't say anything was quality in at any rate. Um, in some cases I didn't even use wood glue. I was just using pin nails. Uh, I think one of the first things that I, first things that sent me down the path that I'm on now is I went to my buddy Tim's, uh, shop in Boise and, uh, he was working on a six or nine, I think it was a six drawer, uh, chest dresser, uh, all custom designed. He had a similar background. He went to furniture school while his wife was in residency um, and was an engineer before that. And so he just kind of had a grasp of all this huge, beautiful shop making one-off custom pieces. And I saw his uh, dresser and I was like, wow, I mean, that is what I want to make. And that kind of got me down that hand tool route and I started collecting planes and uh, chisels, all of the joinery tools that are needed to make and fine tune custom crafted furniture. And I think like many people, I had a hard time finding people to buy that, but I was kind of going one piece at a time. Nobody could accuse you of not having a lot of different passions before you started building furniture. You went to school for one thing. You worked at another thing. You worked at another thing. You threw in a little bit under the radar that you did body painting at festivals, which could be a whole nother interview that we, we're not going to go down <laughs> that road. But you had a lot of different experiences and it feels like those all came together in a desire to do something creative, but you weren't sure what that was going to be until you met Tim, the furniture maker that you were talking about and you meeting him and understanding what he was doing and seeing what he was doing took on sort of a mentorship role for you. You saw in him, this is a profession that I could do. You had all these ideas, but you didn't know what they were going to be until you saw that. And I think that a mentor or an aspirational figure for people who are trying to figure out what they're going to do, especially in the furniture world, but also in general for any career, is really important. Can you talk on how meeting Tim and we'll call him a mentor? I don't know if you want to go that far, but yeah, no, he totally is. Meeting him, how that brought all the different avenues you were going down together and really laser focused you on what you wanted to do. And that was make a furniture company. I think initially when I started woodworking, I was into very geometric things and execution. Right now, if I look at something, I can see exactly how it's made. But back then it wasn't so evident. Like I didn't know what joint went where I was just building things how I thought they should be constructed I wasn't following plans and I have never had the desire to do so 
and really seeing his like training and it was all half blind hand cut dovetailed book match case with piston fit drawers uh, just the attention to detail I was it, it really clicked in my head I was like okay if if all of this stuff on Pinterest that I've seen if I wanted to know how one of these was built it's that one and I wish I had the opportunity to work with him I feel like doing this without a mentor I would not be where without Tim meeting him I wouldn't be here yeah something really just fell into place after seeing that in person and I think it's even different seeing a picture of some of this stuff just uh yeah seeing it raw unfinished and then I went back to help him shoot it um and then we had to move unfortunately but I I, I was on the phone with him this morning I still talk to him weekly at least um he's been an incredible resource for just sort of guiding me showing me the light um i wouldn't be doing bent lamination i wouldn't have found uh the appreciation for curves um curves especially execution is uh at uh, a next level and that is super intimidating if you don't have somebody like it's actually not after you do it once um but just having somebody there be like oh this is how i would do that and especially lately i've been trying to do some really funky stuff having his expertise i mean bonus he's an engineer was before um and be like hey this is not working uh this is really wobbly uh has helped a ton uh he's like oh yeah well you know the rotational mass of something nerdy is you know math and i'm like oh yeah no i didn't know that uh, force equals ma I, I would recommend to anyone finding someone to show them at least something that like in general creatives are happy to share their knowledge and nerd out about it you were in the process of building your own company your own furniture company and you had started with very rudimentary projects and builds and through meeting Tim and through understanding the craft more, your pieces developed and you were getting clients. And I imagine it was word of mouth and you started to hit your stride, but then you moved, you moved from where you were to where you are now. And you had to start in an entirely new market without really knowing the landscape or without really having any clients. And that is, for some, a business killer because word of mouth is just that. It's people talking about your work. And if people don't know your work or don't know you're there or don't have any background with you, then it's almost impossible to get people to talk about your stuff but you made that move and you're still in business. So going back to when you moved and when you started your company fresh in a new place, how did you go about that? How did you start from scratch in a new place? You would think going to a, an incubator, um, I would have approached a little more methodically, but I was really just like, as soon as we moved here, I was like, I want to do this full time. And I think I hear a lot 
of recommendations like keep your if you want to do this full time like keep your you want your overhead to be as low as possible that i totally agree with you want to have your debt as low as possible that i agree with but uh that was not the case for us i mean i had a, a wife that just had basically a mortgage and school fees i'm still paying off school but sort of like having a kid, I don't think that maybe there's always the perfect time to start a business. And if, if anything, being hungry has really helped keep a fire lit under me at all times. I don't know that I'd recommend that to people, but it is, it worked. It's working. I wish I could tell you it was all part of the design um, and I just had this model nailed down. Um, <laughs> we're in Portland and I don't know anybody. I don't really have any connections. I have a thousand followers on Instagram and I've kind of got some open time, some free time. So I decided to build a bench and I found that I had a lot of fun recording that and sharing it on social media. And I went from 2,500 followers to 20,000 in a month. Um, it was pretty incredible. There's a lot of questions I feel quite often, sort of the same question. Uh, one of them is, um, I'm getting a lot of comments from other woodworkers. Is that okay? And I think the answer that I always give to that is my first 20,000 was woodworkers, but that engagement is what drove the algorithm to push it to the next 20,000, which have been customers. And I learned the power of organic unpaid reach and marketing and learning how to share the process and sort of have your value proposition built into the content that is um, out there in public and see what sort of like labor of love is going into every detail. Um, and that really like I don't do any uh, paid ads. I know Google AdSense, no Instagram boosts. Um, I think there is just a lot in sharing with the community in the world and using the proper like hashtags to get it in front of the right people to share what you're doing and see how passionate you are about it and share the person behind the product. Looking at your pieces, the amount of work and the amount of skill and everything behind it just screams high prices. It screams, this is an expensive piece. How do you price your work to reflect the pieces that you're building? These fine furniture custom pieces that take a very long time to make, how do you price that out and are still able to run a business? I feel like I've been on sort of pushing myself to do uh, with every project something that pushes me in some way creatively or um, technique wise uh, and having that sort of it's hard because as soon as you add a new technique some of those new techniques are much more difficult to execute. So I don't feel like 
um, everything I put out is absolutely perfect, but also people who are buying handmade goods appreciate that some human error went in and that a human made it, that it was not, you know, it's not machine perfection. Although I strive to hit that. Um, I don't know that I always do. So I had a conversation with Pretzler, Trent Pretzler from Pretzler Workshop, the $100,000 canoe guy. Super nice dude. Uh, when I, f I think right after I moved to Portland and I sort of asked him, I was like, how have you bridged the gap from production? Like asking for what you think you can break down on a sheet of paper and itemize to then hand over to a customer. And he, he really shaped my model moving forward. He's like, I didn't do that. I, uh, I, I was interested how he bridged that gap from business to, and sort of like craft to art. A um, $100,000 canoe is, uh, I mean, that's a lot of money for a canoe. And what he said is like, I wanted enough time to create something that was worthy of a hundred thousand dollars. I didn't make something and put a hundred thousand dollar price tag on it. I put a hundred thousand dollar price tag on it and made something worthy of the price tag. And I was like, I mean, that just stuck with me. And he said he was just realistic about where he lives and what he needs in a year. Um, and that's how long he wanted to give himself to put out a product that he admittedly says is probably not the finest craftsmanship out there, but from looking outside in, it looks pretty beautiful. Um, but I was really interested in that and, and getting away from the production sense of this is what it's going to cost because this is materials and I know that it is going to take 2.25 hours to do this part and I've broken down X, Y, and Z. Uh, with business, I think there needs to be more flexibility and I sure as heck do not work for myself to punch a clock and I'm not an Excel spreadsheet type of person. Um, I might want to go plane everything and then come back and edit video and figure out my marketing for the week and get a grasp on some designs and work out some joinery on something that I'm struggling with in the future. There, there's just so many ways you're spread every day that it, I had a hard time nailing down such a rigid format. And I really wanted to find a way. Um, and I, I really think I still am trying to find a way to not put a price tag on something to build something worthy of a price tag. Uh, one thing with uh, Trent, uh, his, he's a vintner. I worked fine dining, uh, and had to learn all about wine. He and I have talked about this in that there is a story behind every bottle of wine. And that's really what differentiates a decoy from a duckhorn, um, a silver oak from a whatever off the shelf thing in the gas station. I mean, also taste, but that is acquired and not the point finding that story in something. I think you can build value in the story. If you've ever heard David Boucher, 
Butcher. I I heard something with him on it, and he was talking about how he he's like, oh, this oak log probably traveled with the settlers of 14th century France in their wagon, and it was you know pushed and pulled with toil and soil. And like I'm I'm listening to this, uh, but he, I mean. Dude makes $60,000 office chairs and definitely gets into six figures on one piece of furniture pretty quickly. And there is something to being able to have a story to go along with everything. Um, I feel like if anything can be like clickable, that is what you want to get after Um, like they're just chase a story. There's so much to that. Like people want, something more to say about something than I bought this. (laughs) Your furniture now, from your perspective and from everybody else looking at it, it's a lot different than the pieces you started with, with the reclaimed fence posts into outdoor furniture to now is a leap of epic proportions. The design style you have now is, is something that you have worked on for a while, not only physically, but mentally to get to a place where not only you can build these pieces, but also you can think of these designs. Let's talk a little bit about how you're thinking about these pieces and the stories behind them. I would say, let's go back a year and I think that I I was really intrigued and impressed by the craftsman style, like the craftsmanship. It's not really necessarily craftsman style. I, I'm thinking in particular, like Michael Pekovich, the just like the detail and the just everything's just so crisp and clean. And for a while, I was really after that execution of rectilinear and then at a time I felt like uh, the craftsmanship and the execution and the getting the best I can be at doing uh, the chisel work and just being very precise was the most important thing to what I was after I just want to be I wanted to execute at another level and then it I a lot of the people who have followed me for at least a year um, do know about it. And that is really the shift that the thing that shifted my view from uh, trying to build the best arts and crafts thing to sort of taking it to the more artistic level um, is that uh, my wife and I lost our son and so on that it it the it really important parts to that i think that happened are i i learned what value the community has and really building the the point of sharing all the things online um and finding that community that really i mean helped us so much also i built his urn and I put just so much thought and meaning into every part and was offered the opportunity to do the same for another couple who had lost their son. 
and finding an abstract way to express a life in wood, it's hard to go back to making a table that looks cool. It, it the, that had so much meaning that going back to a item of use that looks good it just it, it didn't click with me anymore like i wanted more depth and meaning behind every piece that i make and a story that i that can be shared with that so i think early on i found that there is a pretty clear delineation between types of woodworking. There are those who are after perfecting the process. And I would kind of put that into the production side. They don't mind doing the same thing over and over again, finding the most efficient way and making the most money there. Um, and I wouldn't say money is the motivator for me. Um, I mean, it obviously some motivation there but i am I, i'm taking advice of others that money will follow um passion and it, it'll kind of work itself out and really early on i saw the closer you get to retail the more competition you have the closer you are replicating something you can buy in a store the more people you are competing with against price so the path that i saw for scaling the quickest was to increase prices. I'd rather make twelve, ten thousand dollars pieces a year than the other way around with maths and zeros. And so I really have wanted to find my style. I feel like I'm still seeking my style. And I think it's important to find a voice of your own in order to set yourself to an easier path Finding really your own unique voice is the easiest way to stand out and uh, present something at a price point that reflects maybe more than what can be itemized on a sheet and takes into account the there's so much to the creative process. There's just like there I don't clock out. I build stuff in my head every night before I go to sleep and every morning when I wake up and every time I come in from the shop and I stare at a wall, it's, it's there, there's a lot of nuance there. That's hard to nail down to an Excel sheet. And I think that, um, that's the path that I saw, um, being something worth pursuing in this less, but better or less and more unique sort of on that um I, I think uh what trent uh taught me to or at least that that whole being realistic about what you need and like not worrying about all the minutiae that comes with trying to break that down that just takes like a lot of time um i at one point was getting more inquiries um, then I was closing and I found it important to a 
one thing I recommend to everyone is to charge for your design. If you're doing custom design, that needs to be a separate itemized part or, you know, pay for it up front. Otherwise you're and 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 apply it to the overall cost if they end up going with you. Um, it kind of weeds out the tire kickers pretty quickly. That is one thing um, that I learned. And the other thing is that I found kind of a blanket cost structure that has worked fairly well for anything um, larger than a side table. Uh, when you add in all the complication and hours that it takes for some more custom items is to just put a blanket price per board foot. Bigger things are more of a pain to move around the shop. Um, they take longer, usually uh, the more intricate, the more material. And I don't know if you want me to like, would it be helpful for your audience to share markup pricing or is, are we staying more general? Let's go as deep down the rabbit hole of pricing as you want to take us. Um, cool. So I think what I initially started with was $15 per board foot. And it really, I mean, I've always said, if you want to be rich, build tables. Um, I find that uh, custom is often not the most profitable thing, but it is it pays in ways that is not money. If you're into that, um, <laughs> it's very rewarding to go through that creative process and see the completed piece. Um, so I started at like $15 per board foot and that kind of worked except for on really small stuff tables. It was great money. Um, I found anything with like, if I was going to piston fit or dovetail, um, drawers that it sort of fell apart there. So I added, uh, 500 per drawer. Uh, I think I started around 200 per drawer. Now it's 500 per drawer on top of that other pricing structure. Um, and now I charge $25 plus per board foot. And I'm also, um, adding a 50%. So say, I think it's going to take exactly a hundred board feet. Um, it's going to be a hundred board feet times price of, uh, cost of materials, um, plus $25 per board foot. And that seems to be a good way to be give like a price that is calculable, um, calculatable. There's a word for that. I'm not sure what it is. And, uh, just so it, just something to write on a uh, piece of paper. It's also really flexible. So if I see the market pricing for, if I would come up with something, I'm like, okay, this jewelry, uh, chest, basically the same labor, way less materials than a dresser. Um, but there's the same number of dovetails. It's super intricate. Um, probably $400 is not going to cover that in this pricing structure. So it gives some flexibility. So, uh, and I kind of judge that on, I think this will take me two weeks. Um, and have like a set studio time. So I've got itemization really comes down to that cost structure. Um, I've got studio time, um, and then design time, um, and studio time. I break down by week. It's yeah. Uh, it has worked well for me. I've found that it's really flexible. When you're 
talking with a client and you're charging for design work before you even get into giving a price for the piece. When you're having that conversation, how does it go? How do you talk with your clients and explain that I'm going to be charging you for the design? And then if you like that design, I'm going to give you pricing for the final piece. And then we're going to go from there. So do they know ballpark of what that price is going to be? Or are they just hearing your design pricing? And then after you talk about the final project pricing. So I give sort of a verbal ballpark um, that gives me plenty of room and it's pretty wide. So it doesn't like nail me down to a price that I'm not sure since I haven't gotten a design yet, I don't know what it's going to be. I learned the importance of a contract um, really being upfront and I want everything on the table. So we both know exactly, exactly how this is going to go. Um, cause really it, it, it reduces confusion all the way around. Um, we don't have to get into all of the details there, but yes, that, um, the, what I tell a client up front is, um, a ballpark. I then, uh, give them how my pricing structure goes. I go, this is the ballpark. You know, I've got, um, I don't do any designing. I do the proposal first. The proposal lists out the design. I think it'll take X amount of, you know, uh, four hours. I just do a hundred dollars per hour for design. Um, and if I know if, if what they're asking for is something that is, if it's going to be complicated, it will get more, an estimate for more design than something that's more simple. And then I will um, give a little, what I sort of do in my head is I get an idea of what I, where I want to go with design, um, give that sort of draft to them. And then I can put a pretty close number on it that so far has not bitten me. Um, it seems to be working well, uh, just to lay everything out kind of as, as I go and then uh, get a deposit. As soon as I get a deposit, then I get into design. Um, and, um, I collect the rest of the 50% when the piece is done, um, still in my position. That is important to people who are just starting out, uh, get paid before you put it in their house. Uh, <laughs> don't ask me how I know that custom furniture and the pricing around it varies dramatically between the pieces because you're making, like you said, sometimes a jewelry box and sometimes an entire dresser and there's differences and nuances between how you're pricing each thing. So having a overarching framework to your pricing is important, but also being able to change that on a project to project basis, depending on what you're making is also important. You need to have the big picture idea, and then you need to be able to move things around to price accordingly to the project that is at hand. Absolutely. And I think having, uh, 
if you set yourself to a certain structure that doesn't take into account market-based pricing, which I think is always great to compare yourself to. If I'm the same money as West Elm for something, I've seen what they produce. I don't want the same money. I want to be more than West Elm um, because I have obviously missed something and I'm underpricing something somewhere if they're getting the same money for something that I am. The generation of furniture makers that are out there now, and I'm putting you in this category, has more advantages in tools, has more advantages in materials, has more advantages in community and and learning from the community at a much faster way through videos on the internet. But what they also have that generations before never had to deal with was putting their process out there for the client who's purchasing it to see. And that includes all the good things, but that also includes the mistakes. And that also includes where there are issues. As somebody who puts the process out there like you do, where you showcase your builds, how do you balance both sides of that where you want the clients to be happy with the work, but you also know that you have a social media audience that is looking to see not only the good, but the bad parts of the build so they can learn on their own. So I'm a unique case, probably not something that everyone looking to build a furniture brand is in, in that I saw the difficulty in scaling one-off pieces and and the cap that that has and also saw the opportunity and basically the infinite possibility for revenue in um, creating content. And I'm really just getting into that, but... um, Showing mistakes, I think, speaking back to my earlier point of people want to buy from a person, not so much a brand, uh, that it really humanizes it. If everything is so perfect and you don't show the trials and, and tribulation that goes into a piece that it it just looks easy if you're trying to... Uh, showcase that in the digital world. If it all looks easy, they assume it's easy. If you show the mistakes, it shows that um, A, you care about fixing them. It also, at least to my audience, resonates really well in showing how to fix it. Um, That is often a time suck and a challenge. Um, and yeah, I, I think it does nothing but good things for, uh, a piece and, and presenting yourself to the world and uh, we all make mistakes. It, it is a very relatable thing. As a furniture business owner, you have to wear a lot of hats. We all know that there's a lot more to owning a furniture company than just building furniture. There's the building, there's the selling, there's the marketing, there's the client interactions. There's all of that going on. A major thing is 
showing your work, especially with your pieces, which are one-offs, you're not making another one of those. So you need to get great documentation of those pieces. And that comes in the form of videos and photos. Your photographs are very well done. And they're a big way that you're showcasing your work for potential future clients. Can you talk about how you're photographing your work on a technical side? If people want to get better at how they're photographing their work for potential clients? Yeah, I think photographing and having a professional presentation probably is why you think my furniture is more serious. Like I, def I definitely think I have a style that I gravitate towards content wise. And that's a little like darker, moodier. Um, I think finding um, a way to showcase your work at a level that you're producing it is really important in highlighting all of the detail that you put into it. Otherwise, if you're just shooting something um, in your living room, you're really not giving justice to the hours that you've put in. Um, uh, I, I can't even explain how important that portion is. Um, as far as a technical side, uh, I think lighting uh, is what people need to learn. I. I mean, I started with a really not great camera and a not great lens. The difference between, uh, somebody told me this, the difference between an amateur and a professional photographer is a tripod. Um, I don't know that I like totally agree with that, but when you're starting out, it doesn't matter how expensive your lens is. Uh, I don't care if it's uh, maximum aperture is f11 um, if you put it on a tripod you can set that thing to you know six seconds or whatever that exposure takes um, but really having the proper lighting probably the easiest for people to approach that is going to be continuous lighting i what i started out with was the like the big fluorescent bulbs they don't output a lot of light it's hard to overcome ambient light to make those look good. There are some less expensive options out there for continuous lighting. Um, I shoot, well, I shoot stills with strobes, but um, I think for continuous lighting, like the entry level, the Amaran uh, Aperture's entry level, uh, 60Ds probably are a great choice. They're a hundred bucks a piece or something like that. Uh, I don't think camera is important. Uh, learning all of the things to learn in post in Lightroom. Um, uh, I wouldn't say Photoshop is uh, probably necessary. It's been helpful in producing more, um, I don't know, fun designy content, but I don't know that like any of my any of my photos on my portfolio on my website have any Photoshop. It's just like really honing in the, the light on Lightroom. You've mentioned a lot in this interview about how important community is to you and how you have mentors in 
the designing, in the pricing, in all aspects of building your furniture business. There are people out there who are looking to get into the furniture business in the same style of furniture that you're doing or in a completely different way, but still trying to find their not only voice in the furniture world, but also the business side as well. And there's also people who have been doing this for a while and who have had success, but feel like there's more on the table that they're not taking advantage of. For you being in this industry and having experiences in this industry and also learning from a lot of people who came before you and have done this already, what's some advice that you could share with people who are looking to take their furniture company to the next level? I, I mean, man, everything we've talked about really, I, 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 I put less importance on the Excel spreadsheet and more on presenting my, my work more professionally in a way that gains eyeballs and knowing how organic reach works and uh, using proper hashtags and SEO to get your work in front of the right people. Um, I am a firm believer that every piece, every next piece, if they're trying to take it to the next level, they have to take their craft to the next level and learn something new. Um, as soon as you feel comfortable throughout an entire build, that's where you should feel the most that not should, um, that I, I don't, if that's your thing, that's totally cool. Um, that is where I feel the most uncomfortable because it feels stagnant. It feels, it, I guess I'm a glutton for punishment, but um, I I think if you want to push yourself to the next level, you need to find the next thing that pushes you out of your comfort zone, and and really working to improve each thing one at a time. There are many hats that a business owner wears, and just do your best to focus a little bit on everything and you will be shocked what 1% does a day over the course of 365 days. It's a little bit at a time. You don't come into the business knowing the business. You have to learn it. No matter how much research you've done, no matter how much you've looked into it, community and talking to community is always a great way to start, but you need to make your own company. That's why it's your company and not working for somebody else. I appreciate you sharing the building advice, the business advice, and the personal advice in this episode. And I want to thank you for your time. And I'm sure everybody else listening thanks you as well. And I wish you nothing but continued success moving forward in your business. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. And uh, I'll, with that note, I'll share my uh, one of my favorite phrases. Don't talk about it, be about it. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey. 
ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.